Hey everyone, this is Steph from the Heinemann Podcast. Today we are joined by fellow educators and Heinemann authors, Lorena Herman and Dr. Tawanda Harris. Lorena Herman is a Dominican American educator focused on anti racist and anti bias education. She is a two time nationally awarded educator whose work has been featured in numerous newspapers and journals. Her new book from Heinemann is called Textured Teaching, a framework for culturally sustaining practices, which provides lesson design strategies that build literacy and social justice. Dr. Tawanda Harris is currently an instructional leadership coordinator and an adjunct professor of reading and writing in Atlanta, Georgia, with almost 20 years experience in education. She is the author of The Right Tools, a guide to selecting, evaluating, and implementing classroom resources and practices. Educators rely on her wisdom about how to find resources that meet their teaching goals and their students' needs. When they realized that there were meaningful overlaps in their work, Lorena and Tawanda decided to sit down and talk about how by using both of their instructional frameworks, we can take a curriculum beyond just student-centered and engage in teaching that is both student-driven and community-centered. When your book came out, oh my goodness, I was I was so excited and I, I saw so many connections to my book and I was excited to see textured teaching being student-centered, that it was community-centered, um, interdisciplinary and, you know, experiential, like how awesome that is. And wouldn't that be wonderful if that would be teaching every day for students? And then I just think about my book and how I really wanted the resources to be centered by the students that, you know, I wanted to make sure that what teachers are using with students, that it's not about the resources, but it's more so about the students that are before them. So, you know, what are, what are your thoughts? I would like to just hear like the foundation of like your thinking process as to how the chapters even came about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So first of all, I agree. I saw a number of connections between your, not, not just the book design, but what you walk us through and the impetus too. And, and you know, there's something to be said about books and what we write as a form of being a, a channeling of sorts, right? Using that as a space to let things go or to put things up or to shake things, right? Like yeah. books are this space where a lot of action happens and whatever. It's just making me think about how the ways that books not only teach us a thing, but understanding the author and who they are um, as another layer of comprehension. And I think that that's probably where the richness of, of empathy, of getting empathy from books lies. I'm just having that thought right now as, I, as I'm hearing you, right? Because like someone who doesn't know you, who hasn't heard that, and the same for me, who maybe doesn't read the intro and skips into the chapters, might not understand what's beneath the surface, right? What's behind the writing. And I think that if you don't know that, then you miss maybe the um, reason, the why for some of those things and the passion behind some of those things, you know? Anyway, so how did this all come together? I... I, we've talked about how this was a form of documenting, right? Where, where after a number of years, I was like, you know what? 
this is not impossible. It can be reproducible. How can I get other teachers to do some of this for the improvement of our students' experiences in schools? And so it actually started as an article. The concepts were, were put together in this brief little article that I wrote for ASCD. And, you know, I just let that live there. And then years later, I was like, you know, that's, that really is a whole thing. Like, that's not just an article. And so when I built a relationship with the editor, Louisa, at Heinemann, she was like, you know, I think that's it. I think that's the book. And I was like, really? You think that's a whole book, though? I, I had imagined, like, maybe it was another article <laughs> where I fleshed things out a little bit further. And she was like, no, 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 that's it. And so she also heard this book and these ideas from that article, but in presentations that I was doing at NCTE and different places. And she was like, it's all the same. And I was like, okay, I hear that. And so, yeah, how did all of this come together? Like, how did the, the chapters end up that way? And in an effort to introduce a way of teaching, I wanted to itemize those steps. I wanted to identify them for teachers really clearly. And so that's how we ended up saying, well, what, what are the actual steps? And can we make those chapters so that you can flesh them out? in as much detail as possible so that teachers know not just how to do it, but what not to do, because there's some trickiness in there, right? Mm -hmm. Particularly the experiential chapter, which is where I talk about simulations and all that stuff that people like to do that are like horrible, right? So I, I talk about what not to do very clearly and what, but then more importantly, what can I do then? So what is available for me to do with my students to make it experiential, to make it very physical and, and support, you know, brain-based learning in that way. So that's kind of how I structured it and why it ended up being that way. And then I, I wanted to, you know, I was like, wait, before we jump into this, they we've got to name some stuff. We've got to call things what they are. And I wanted to speak to the reality that people are facing in schools. Too often I'll read a book where we don't talk about, we don't talk about how oppressive some of these systems are. And you and I've talked about how our very first school setting was like horrid, right? <laughs> it was like the, the complete opposite of any type of teacher autonomy. And so I just felt like no, none of these books that talk about teacher things to do really address that reality, or at least I haven't seen it. I shouldn't say none do. I, I have yet to seen it. And so I wanted to really clearly name that and start from there, saying, saying I, I know where some of y'all are at. I was there. I know where some of you are at now because I'm there now, right? And there's a lot of in between. And so this is for everybody in those contexts. And you're not going to be able to do it all everywhere, like, right? Because teaching is so contextual, right? It makes me think about um, when you were talking about the way you organized uh, the chapters or how they ended up kind of falling in line. Um, when I was writing my book, I really had to think through, like you said, what were those steps that I had to go through in order to get to where I grew um, stronger as a teacher? And um, I remember my first year teaching, I'm walking in and I'm like bright eyed and bushy tailed and all of that. I'm like, yes, I'm so excited. I get to teach and I get there and I get handed a scripted program. And it was a line by line type of program. And I remember feeling um, so deflated 
you know, you have all of these aspirations as a first year teacher to change the world. And then you walk into this system that was not created for our students to be those critical thinkers or those change makers. And so because of that, there was um, a lot of learning that I had to do on my own, my first year teaching. And I remember feeling alone in that process because, you know, teachers want to do right. Teachers want to always be on the good list. And sometimes this work doesn't put you on the, the school's good list, but you have to be reminded that it is not about you. It's more so about the students. And so when I was thinking about the topics of the chapters, I wanted each chapter to be written kind of like in isolation so that if I'm a teacher, that guiding question, how will I, how do I know if this resource works or how do I know if this is what my students needs and what are my students strengths and so forth, that a teacher could just go to that chapter and find what they needed in that chapter and just providing some tools for teachers to do this work. And so even I think about now my resource inventory checklist that I have in there. Well, that was because every year as a teacher, I was a hoarder, you know, like I would keep my things year to year and, you know, veteran teachers would leave and they're like, oh, we'll give you this. And so you have this closet full of everything. I show up like, <laughs> where's the area where I can pull? Thank you. Yes. Yes. It was literally, you know, they would sit the things on the, the in the hallway and you're just excited. And then you end up with a classroom full of stuff. And you don't even know the students that would be, you know, before you from year to year, but you're creating this environment outside of knowing who your students are. And so that was a wake up call for me because I realized that I had a, a bunch of stuff, but not everything that I had connected directly to my students. So I had to go through a period of just purging and finding out where those gaps were and what I was using with my students. I really, I really like the student progress tracker. When I walked through that, I was like, this is so helpful. This is so useful. I wish I would have had something like this in my first couple of years, particularly when, when the demands for track the data, here's the standardized test, here's the st starting score, the second score, like all of that stuff was so exhausting. Um, and it felt really like useless but I like how this just allows me to, to use data other than those tests. And it's still really thoughtful and fleshed out. You know what I mean? And it can be, I mean, yes, you know what I mean. And it can be very helpful. And then I really appreciated the one that has like the extra accommodations, right? For the students who have those additional needs and need that extra support. I really thought that was very useful and I appreciated how thoughtful you were in just like how you even structured it. Can you tell me about using that? Yeah. And so, you know, it was, it's interesting because, you know, to your point about, um, you know, the, the data points that we're using with students, a lot of times in schools, we use quantitative data. And so it's always a number that we associate with the value or the strength of a student. And I always tell, you know, educators, there is always a story behind the number all of the time. And so even if we have two students that scored a 99, 
that means nothing because a 99 for one student might be great and um, it might be something that they've, you know, grown to, but then a 99 for another student might actually be, you know, where they, they've become compliant or complacent in their growth. And so it's important that we start to identify different characteristics of what we see as being successful. And so, and I, I use that word loosely because sometimes our biases, you know, like that you talk about in, in your book, they force us to put success in this box of, okay, if you do this, this is exactly what it will look like. But we also know that our students are brilliant and that they don't always, more times than not, fit into a box. And so we have to even rethink what success looks like. And so the idea behind the progress tracker was, you know, how do we kind of look at different characteristics along the way and not to feel restricted with that so that I can use this as an entry point, not as a landing ground, like, oh, you are here and this is where you're going to be for the remainder of the semester or the remainder of the year. The goal is that I provide opportunities, rich opportunities that you can, you know, build your own ownership or not build your own ownership, but that student agency starts to take place where students start to own their journey or start to take the lead on their journey because that's what we want students to do. We don't want to be the giver of all knowledge. We want students to understand that we are learning and growing together, but we have to also make sure we're creating spaces for that. So the idea behind that progress tracker was just that. How do we move away from this number but really peel back the layers to see the characteristics of that student's um, progress performance. But it makes me think um, about, in, in your book, you have the traits of textured teaching. And so as I'm talking about this, uh, I, you know, I'm drawn to the infographic that you have. I think it's figure 1-5 on the traits of textured teaching and how it really kind of complements or, you know, goes hand in hand with this student um, progress tracker, because we're talking about like student driven and community centered and um, that the learning is interdisciplinary. It's experiential. And then, you know, it's flexible. Oh, my goodness. Flexible. Like I always say as an educator, I need a T-shirt. I think I'm going to make that. I have a cricket. So I, it, you have to have, you know, flexible, flexibility is a non-negotiable because our students come to us with so many layers, so many factors and so many things that we don't know. And it's kind of like you open Pandora's box and you see all of the intricacies that make up this little tiny human of a learner. And, you know, our goal is to kind of pull that out. So can you talk a little bit more about just the traits? Yeah. So, you know, too often folks will, you know, other teachers and particularly administrators will talk about this good stuff that's happening in a teacher's classroom and say, oh, they're, they're just so great. They're just magic. And, every, and there's this understanding that, like, if you end up in that teacher's classroom, then you're all set for the year. And, like, it just doesn't happen anywhere else, right? And so, again, back to me wanting to demystify that and say, no, this is not magic. This is just hard work. 
and being very methodical, right? And being very strategic. That's how we get to these traits. I thought about what are all the different things that I do? What are all the things that I know other good teachers employ? And how can I categorize them into something that then comes together, right? To be this texture teaching. And that's how I ended up in those traits. And, and I was going to do student-driven alone and community-centered separately. Um, but then I realized that I wanted to go beyond being student-centered because student-centered is very important, right? Which is like, my kids are at the center of my planning. My kids are at the center of what we do in this room and the choices that I make. I wanted to say the community is one that you can do that with, right? Like you teach in Flint, there's a lot there that we need to center, right? There's a lot about this community that we need to center. And instead of you feeling like you need to make those decisions for students, you can let them drive that centering. So that's how I ended up with like, it needs to be student driven and community centered together. And then I want to talk a little bit about flexibility. So the, the flexible one speaks to the, the nuances that are required for good teaching. You know, like I might have a lesson plan today and then I realize like, yeah, that's just not the, where the kids want to go right now. <laughs> and instead of it taking place in 50 minutes, it's going to take three days. Mm-hmm. And so I have to be flexible to move about. But even more so, I've got to be flexible then in how I adjust my expectations of what they're doing, right? And so I have to adjust my expectations of what success is going to look like, to your point. I've got to adjust the rubric now, because now instead of me thinking they're just going to write this and we're going to spend more time on that, no. You know, now we have to sit together as a group and reevaluate this rubric. This, This obviously doesn't meet what it is that we're doing. Our goals have gone beyond this rubric now. So let's revisit that and let's let's tailor it a little differently and allow students to drive some of that process. It makes me think of like the responsiveness, you know, like being responsive to the students that are before you, that even though you created this lesson plan, that doesn't mean that it should be a line by line, you know, check box for you, but that you are responding directly to, you know, the students in real time. I, I can you know, I can hear teachers who are like, yeah, but I'm time bound. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, yeah. Like I don't always have the luxury of saying, oh, this is now gonna take a week instead of a day. Um and I guess that's where I get really angry at these standardized tests. Cause that's really what is causing so much ruckus, right? And these tests, the way that they are designed and the way that they function in our students' lives are the opposite of all of this. They are completely inflexible. They are not at all student-driven. They're not community-centered, right? They're not experiential. Quite the opposite. You got to just sit there and do the thing, this interaction with these bubbles. And they're not interdisciplinary. And then, and then the fact that they really do play this role in determining the quality of people's lives, I don't think we think about that enough. Testing is one of the reasons why I left the first school I was at. I mean, I will say it was the main reason, actually. It was the reason. I remember the the principal who I became good friends with. He came into my room. It was the end of the day. My lights were off because, of course, you know, I'm like mental break. May pretend I'm not here. I needed a break. And he knew I was in there anyway and came in and sat there and said, what do I have to do to keep you here? And I said, get rid of these tests. And he said, I can't. I said, I know you can't. 
but that's it. If we can get rid of these tests, I will stay here. Because it just, I mean, Tawanda, the year I left, we ran out of school days and we were still testing. Yes. We had more, we had like three weeks left of testing. There were no more school days. Yeah. So it was like the last day of school and we still had two more. That doesn't even make sense. I I, I completely feel, I just feel it in my gut, you know, what you are, are talking about. And I remember just being frustrated because I was in a setting in which the test scores meant more than anything, more than anything. And so I remember around March, that's when we shut down instruction and we moved into test prep zone. When you say it out loud, it's just so, it's so not student centered, the opposite, like you hit it on the nail, like that is the opposite. And so where we are transitioning into um, doing uh, mock tests, shutting the whole school down, we're running this and helping students to be great test takers. And we're not showing them how to take the learning and apply it to their you know everyday world and connect it back to their community um to your point about student driven being community centered as well but um in the book i talk about there's this one student i'll never forget he was such a wonderful student and his his mom was absolutely amazing she was so supportive of his education um we had just a great relationship and i was a third grade teacher at the time and in our state, you had to pass the test in third grade in order to go on to fourth grade. None of the things that were the student did throughout the year were considered with this test. It was like the end all be all. And so I had a, a student, he had text, really bad test anxiety. Like it was really, really bad for him. And I remember on the day of the test, because as a school, we put a, a big focus on it. And so, of course, you're nervous. You're a third grader. You want to go with your friends to fourth grade. So he gets on the test and the first part of the test, he ends up his his whole breakfast came up over his test. Now, this was the crazy part. So the way it works, if you see a certain section of this test, you can no longer finish that test. So he did not finish the test, which meant that that test was unscored, which meant that he did not pass the test. So he ended up not passing the test. He had to go to summer school. And again, he gets really, really worked up and really nervous. And finally, you know, I just had to just say in a meeting, this is one of my just strongest students. This student does not have any skills that he is lacking. He needs to go to fourth grade. And I remember having to pull all of my documentation to show that this student was a student that would do well in fourth grade. But think about all of those students that there isn't someone to advocate for them. But because of this one test, this one measure, regardless of what they've done throughout the year, that determines their um, educational, um, their access to um, education, in a sense. Yeah. So in Massachusetts, your passing of the state test at the high school level determines graduation. You're telling me that a kid who just arrived from Dominican Republic months ago is going to pass this test? And they're not. And so they have been sent here by family 
to achieve the American dream. And they spent two years here, barely learning academic language, academic English, enough to pass this test. And now they're 18. And in this country, what are you gonna do without a high school diploma? What kind of job are you gonna have? So that's the quality of life stuff that I'm talking about that we don't discuss. Test is determining the quality of your life. What kind of job you're about to have, what kind of social standing you're gonna have, right? Like what, what potential involvement with the law you're gonna have. It is no coincidence that many of those students ended up falling into gangs, falling into um, the drug trade that has taken over New England, mainly because of the opioid stuff that's going on in New Hampshire. Like this ends up all tying into each other. I've got a bunch of students that are in prison. Prison, right? Um, and it's not because, oh, they're lazy or they just didn't know what to do or they just made bad choices. Like, no, this was very much systemic. It was very much systemic. I don't believe that anybody wakes up and says, you know what, I want to go for, I want to get into a career where I do things that could end, you know, end me up in prison and I'm potentially killing people. Like, I just really don't think anybody's really doing that. Particularly these students who don't come from privilege, who have a big sense of empathy because they know what it's like to be in a country where poverty is the norm. And then you get here and, and it's the opposite of what you thought it was going to be. Now I'm supposed to come here and sit down on this thing and pass these tests that I have no idea what they're Well, asking. and then there's assumptions that are made, you know, that are being made about just students in general. I, I remember just having a conversation with um, an administrator and I said, you know, my question was, you know, are you going to give bias training to your staff? And the response was, well, my teachers look like the students that you know, they're teaching. And I'm like, that means nothing because every person, we all have biases. And because of that, we really have to call them out and hold each other accountable for those things. Because ultimately the danger is that it's hurting students and it determines the classes they're going to take. It determines the um, access that they have to, you know, additional educational opportunities. Like it determines everything. And, you know, to your point about the high school graduation, we have that um, in Georgia. And I remember my, I know we're not supposed to have favorites. So please, if any of my students ever listened to this, I didn't have one favorite. I had multiple favorites, but there was one student. Oh, I, she was my absolute heart. And years later, I was a third grade teacher. Years later, she came back and she was taking, she was an, uh, a senior and she could not pass the test and she never ended up getting um, a diploma at all. And um, she was a, a, one of my Hispanic students and she ended up having to, because she needed to to bring in some money for her family because they were all, you know, uh, working together and they, everyone was living together. And she had to opt to just go ahead and take the track of working. And I'm like, this student was absolutely amazing. Like if I was not there, I could sit to the side and she could teach my class. And I'm like, what is this assessment measuring? You know, what, what is it? But I know we could be here forever talking about this, but, you know, I want to kind of maybe if we can end with this, what are the things that we want to leave with educators that, you know, do have the pressure of thinking about this assessment at the end of the year, but know that they want 
to allow spaces for their students to bring their entire selves. They're going to have to think out of the box and they're going to have to do some of their own training, unfortunately. Right. There's always exceptions to the rule and there's always going to be teachers who have these great admins who do all the things that teachers really need. But that's not the norm. That's not widespread. And so I say that, yes, because I want them to buy our books, but also because I, I, I know that I did not consider in my first several years of like, I can I can actually go and develop professionally outside of what my school offers me. And so I want them to think out of the box to say, you know what, I need to learn more about the right tools to bring to my class, right? The the This book called The Right Tools, right? Like I need to go in there and I need to figure out some new systems for myself so that I can find the loopholes of where I'm at and, and bring a more humane approach, you know? And my hope is that with my book, they'll be able to pull from there what they can use, if not the whole thing, and implement it in their own spaces and, and start it that way and then build capacity in their own building by sharing ideas with others. And that way you build community and then you're all doing some of this PD together. And yes, unfortunately, it means that you're spending extra time on it, but maybe, you know, with enough support from other teachers, y'all can get your admin to turn things around too. And I would just add to um, what you were saying. I think about me as um, in my first year, first couple of years of teaching, how I was handed a package program. And I know that I work with a lot of schools in which they, you know, have a package program that is in hand. And the expectation is that they're going to follow it uh, book by book, question by question. But one of the things that I always say is, you know, during your planning, you can always look at the questions, the titles of the books, all of those things, and really pause long enough to say, are multiple perspectives being brought into this space? Or are these questions allowing this learning to connect back to students? So one thing that could be really helpful is as teachers are planning for instruction, instead of saying, oh, well, it's time to teach. I'm just going to turn to lesson five, um, unit five, lesson four, and keep going. But to be plan before that happens. And as you're looking at the question, I would have sticky notes. I'm going to add this additional question here, or I'm going to modify this, or I'm going to have a pause and let's do a gallery walk of the images. What do we see? What do we connect? Because if we can't get our students to connect to the learning, then they are not going to feel a part of it's whack. Yes. It's like, listen, I'll pass the test. That's what I'll do. But, you know, trying to put the heavy lifting or the ownership back over into the hands of the student. And it requires work and it doesn't just happen by picking up a manual and, um, you know, teaching for the day. It's always, always great to be in conversation with you. I'm so excited about just um, your book. And of course, I was like selfishly excited that there was like a connection to my book. I was like, oh, yes, this is this is wonderful. But, you know, just thank you for um, just writing from your experience um, just to help educators do this work. Our thanks to Lorena and Tawanda for their time today. You can order both Texture Teaching and The Right Tools from Heinemann.com. You can find Lorena on Twitter at N-E-N-A Herman and Tawanda at D-R-T Harris. Learn more and read a transcript of this episode at blog.heinemann.com. 
The Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. It is produced and edited by Steph George. Sound mixing by Steph George. Our creative producer is Lauren Audette. And our executive producer is me, Brett Whitmarsh. To learn more about the Heinemann Podcast, visit blog.heinemann.com. Thanks for listening.